The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the newest edition of the Culture Caucus Podcast, the special Cleveland GOP Convention edition. I'm John Eilman. And I'm Will Leach. And we are here, as I said a moment ago, in C-Town. I've missed everyone. I know. It's been a while since we've seen each other. Will's been off um, uh, making money, mm -hmm. uh, yes. stealing things. Yes, that's also Engaged true. in larceny. That part is mostly true. Yes, and probably seeing a lot of baseball games. That, that part is definitely yeah, that's true. Definitely true. Um, and, but we're here, we've reunited here, um, and it's uh, kind of awesome, right? It is. Fan it is. Uh, there are many words I would describe the experience of being in Cleveland for the Republican Convention this week. Awesome is one of them. There are also many others. Right. So here's my thing. You've never been to a, a convention before. Um, let's just say this before we indulge any further in this right. conversation. We have today one of my favorite humans with us to do this podcast, Jay Roach, uh, Emmy Award-winning uh, director of a bunch of incredible political films, uh, Recount and Game Change, which I was involved with for HBO, uh, Trumbo, uh, Academy Award-nominated film, uh, all the way with Brian Cranston about LBJ, just came out, uh, got a bunch of Emmy Award nominations recently, also a huge comedy director in the past, one of the smartest, uh, most interesting artists I know in the realm of commercial entertainment. So we're going to talk to him about political movies later on and his work in that area later on in the podcast. But for now, let's just like revel, let's wallow, <laughs> yeah. let's kind of swim around in the whole thing of not just a Republican, not just a national political convention, not just a Republican national political convention, but the Donald Trump <laughs> show, yes. right? This is what, here we are. So, Will, this is your first convention? Correct. The, I, I covered the protests at the LA convention in 2000. Right. So your first convention happens to be the Trump show. Yes. I'm just really interested, just impressionistically speaking, as a guy who lives at the intersection of culture and politics, like what are you seeing on the streets, <laughs> outside the hall, inside the hall? Like, just tell me what's struck you. Well, generally speaking, it's worth noting that you know, this, because this is the first, really the first presidential election I've covered, yeah. you know, I've covered sports, I've covered uh, entertainment. I want to ask you, actually, as a film critic uh, myself, what uh, outside of Game Change, of course, what it, your favorite movie of Jay Roach's is at some point, because I'm curious your thoughts on that. But as a general, the first time doing this, I have to say, I always imagined, and this is a really good sign that it was the first time I've done this, I always imagined covering a presidential election would be somehow ennobling. I imagine it being a, a, you know, more serious work. You know, we'll, we'll talk to Jay Roach. You know, he made these comedy movies, and now he makes these serious movies. I always kind of imagine that being the case. Here, I never imagined, you know, but I've covered sports. I've never covered entertainment. I've never covered a debate where someone discussed the candidates, the people on stage. I've never covered an event where the people on stage discuss penis size. And I, or in particular, a candidate discussing his own penis right, size. Right, and That's I interview baseball players right, in yes, their, right. literally in their underwear yeah, while, their, the while their penises are out. Yes, and so, right. so I guess you don't have to say. I guess really Trump was not that different really in a lot of ways than just a baseball player that's refusing. I've had players refuse to put pants on, specifically interviewing me. That's kind of, I guess, what, uh, what Trump's going to be doing. Speaking but, of which, I just want to say, Listening to Lenny Dykstra's interview the other day with yes. on the Howard Stern show, Lenny Dykstra's new book out, um, he talks an extraordinary amount about how big Daryl Strawberry's 
cock is. I mean, it's it's an amazingly large portion, so to speak, uh, of the book. Anyway, I, that, I found it fascinating. Lenny Dykstra, an amazing character. But let's let's try to stick to the topic. <laughs> so Trojbridge doesn't have a coronary, right? yeah. as we just sit here and talk about cocks. We get we get talking about Lenny Dykstra's book. We'll be very sidetracked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, the, he's a he's a financial genius. Remember, he, yeah. he can see the future of the market. Let's he not forget that little era amazing. of Len, Lenny Dykstra's uh, career. But so being here this week has been fascinating because it it's, it seems to me so many people were talking about coming in about there's going to be chaos on the streets there's going to be protests everywhere but the chaos seems to be almost entirely held entirely within the convention walls in fact i wrote a piece for bloomberg politics that hopefully will be up around now about how in a lot of ways kind of joking this is cop woodstock in the idea that you know imagine there are cops from everywhere like forget just the cleveland pd there are cops the, the california highway patrol has sent 300 cops here there are cops from austin there are cops from indiana when you walk down the street there are police everywhere. Not only are there more policemen than protesters, I, it's possible there are more policemen than actual attendees uh, of the convention. And it's led to this very, and of course, obviously with the tragic things that, that have happened in Dallas and in Baton Rouge, there's uh, this outpouring of goodwill toward cops, which and I, I, I don't think anyone's going to be not supportive of that. But it's very strange to see this incredible cop presence. This is the convention where I've seen more cops hugged <laughs> and more cops like that's all and just spontaneously applauded yeah that's another thing like that down the street. Like, it, it, right. imagine if the analogy i used in my piece was imagine if after right about a month after 9-11 there was a national fire in one town and everybody all the firefighters of america came to fight it and how we would treat those firefighters right. there that's right. actually how it feels like yeah. here and uh and i'm, I'm not I don't think there's, there's obviously nothing wrong with that idea but it's certainly an interesting moment for you know I had family members who are like, wow, you're going to Cleveland. What's it going to be like there? Take yeah. a flak jacket. Yeah, exactly. It feels a lot more dangerous with what's going on inside the Quicken Loans Arena yeah. than, than what's, what's, what's outside. Yeah, I, I have to say, you know, I'm a little disappointed. Um, you know, we're, we're recording this on the Tuesday morning, almost afternoon of the post convention. Post-Melania. So post-Melania, but only post one day. And I will say, you know, if I'm Ryan's Priebus, People are coming up to me and saying, man, the stage looks great. This looks really professional. A little bit surprised because people kind of thought this was going to be a total shit show. You know, but f to me, I was sort of looking forward, and I don't mean just in a, in a kind of perverse way, but I was kind of looking forward to a convention that was really different from every other convention I've ever covered, you know, that looked different, that smelled different, that kind of like where the, 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 there was more showbiz magic or whatever Donald Trump thinks is showbiz magic. I would have appreciated seeing that because I actually believe, like if you take it away from Trump, the notion that these spectacles have become overly produced, overly predictable infomercials for the parties that really hardly differ between the parties, apart from a little bit on like the substantive things they're saying, the substantive things they're saying. But like in terms of what they look like on TV, they all look the same. The kinds of speakers are all the same. They all represent a certain kind of diversity. It's like it had become like just become very tedious over time. Right. And I'm always interested, obviously, in the high profile speeches. But. I was like looking forward to, okay, well, here's going to be a really different take on a convention. Really different kinds of speakers, really different kind of stagecraft. What's he going to do? What's he going to give us? And last night, and on the basis of what we know about what's coming, there's no doubt that there's um, a slightly different flavor to the speakers because they are more B and C list. Right. And there are some entertainment people and sports people who are, again, B and C list. So there's not as much political royalty or any other kind of royalty. But in terms of like, the presentation, the run of show, the way the stage looks, the way the lights work, 
It's 2012 in Tampa with Republicans. It's 2008 in Minneapolis with Republicans. It's like, it's all identikit kind of like, and, and I find that like conventionality sort of disappointing on the part of Donald Trump. It's like, dude, come on, you're supposed to be a showman. Apart from the dry ice thing last night, <laughs> and we are the champions, everything last night could have taken place at every other Republican convention that I've been to over the entirety of my career. Yeah, you know, and it's another reminder how much fun this might have been if, as rumored, Mark Burnett was actually going to be the producer oh, of this. Yeah. Someone that worked in television that knew how this worked. Because this was, I mean, it was like every long award show that everyone is always complaining about. It, runs, it ran too long. And you, know, and you saw it more... You never. I don't think anyone expected this to run like clockwork. I don't think much of what's really good going on with the campaign is running like clockwork. And I think you know the mistake of having Joni Ernst go out after, right, right, after right. prime time, all yeah. those sort of mistakes. But those are like those are predictable things. You would imagine that they would have trouble getting getting all that nailed down. But you expected some pop, you know. And it's funny. I think of speakers that I thought were theoretically made sense like Willie Robertson we can joke about Duck Dynasty all you want but this is a guy that has a clear constituency has a successful program has people clearly stands for a certain thing that people will respond to and I felt like if more speakers would have been like that where he's actually a very skilled speaker he even had like the mantra of, uh, of uh, Trump's got your back and it really like he repeated it he got the kind of crowd with him it was really well done and I felt like, okay, maybe that if you just actually have reality stars come out and do reality star things who have a specific viewpoint, that could have been something. But then he's followed by Scott Bayo, who even in the realm of like entertainment is a joke, let alone- Chachi in charge, baby. Yeah, and just, I mean, it's, it didn't really add anything to it. I think that was the issue. It's not, the problem is not that there are entertainers. The problem is that they're really generally kind of lame entertainers right. doing an imperson a bad impersonation of a convention speech. And right. I think that's really what the problem is. Rather than just, you know, entertaining. That's what I liked about Willie Robertson. He was actually entertaining and everyone else was just kind of actors pretending to be politicians. Right. So we're going to get Jay Roach out here real quick. And, and one of the things I know Jay is here. He may or may not admit this, but he's here kind of like sniffing around trying to figure out like maybe there's a movie in this election. It's not like a novel idea. Like everyone in Hollywood right now is like, how can we make a movie out of this thing? So he's out here with Leta Mata, the head of HBO Films, and they're like, they don't have a plan yet. But I think they're like, they're sniffing, right? <laughs> that's, 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 that's my imitation of them sniffing, 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 around for a, sniffing around for a movie. So I guess before we turn to Jay, I'll ask you this question. Like when you think about in the annals of political films, Will, what are your favorites? You know, a very underrated political film that I often, when there's a massive figure like a Trump whose life seems to span this, these generations, this, I always think of Oliver Stone's Nixon. I feel like it's really well done. It's, it's a little bit lower key. I think when you think of political films, you think of JFK, obviously. And I think uh, it may have a loose affiliation with the truth, but it's certainly very well entertaining, very entertaining and very well done. But Nixon, to me, even though Anthony Hopkins looks nothing like Richard Nixon at all, right. and it's, not, it's not really impersonation, right. it always felt like this attempt to put him like really dig into who that who he was in a way that that was more obsessed with him as a person than necessarily the context of the times which is kind of surprising you don't think of that with Oliver Stone I've always thought that's a very underrated Oliver Stone movie and a very un uh, understated saw political movie and I keep, I, I find myself with someone like Trump trying to imagine like 25 years Trump and like someone's trying to like because the, the thing about that movie is it really tries to dig into Richard Nixon's head and really tries to figure him out through Oliver Stone's perspective of course but still certainly really tries to has empathy, has some empathy for him. It sees his flaws. It sees his skills, and but tries to get outside of everything that he was going on. So I so I always imagine will there be a Trump movie like that in twenty or twenty five right. years? Because that that to me seems the pinnacle of not the sort of the pinnacle, but the modern times example of someone twenty five years later trying to put this massive cultural figure who 
changed things in a way that in no, that in the, no one really could have anticipated and came back from the brink and, and came back from humiliation to to succeed and then fall short at the end. That feels like a just a tradition, a great American political arc. And Trump feels like that large of a character. But I don't know how you dramatize him. You know, I, the it's it, you, it, you can't really do him. Johnny Depp did a thing on Funny or Die this year that uh, that I did not think was very effective at all. It was like to try to right. make a comedic version of the art of a deal. And Johnny Depp has his own issues as a performer, but it's not. He just never digs into it. It's just a joke. It's just it, and it doesn't really work. But can you play Trump seriously? How can you do that? But I, I think when I watch Trump now and I think of how much he's changed, I think of that great McKay Coppin story that's on uh, BuzzFeed about how he kind of humiliated him a couple of years ago and how that kind of drove him to this point. That is Barry Lyndon. That's Citizen Kane. That's like a fascinating American story. I feel like in 25, 30 years, if they're still making movies, if we're not all just watching things on the inside of our eyelids, um, I, I think that'd be a pretty fascinating thing to watch. Yeah, I think that's that's I think that's right. I mean, I'll be really interested to see if anybody gets a movie up um uh, about this about this election, and, I mean, we'll and, see if he wins. I mean, uh, yeah. it makes well, a difference I, as well. You know, you'd be pretty good even with, with if he doesn't win. I think my uh, I'm 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 a '70s movie fan, right? Oh, yeah, so yeah. you know, like I'm always thinking like about the candidate. Yeah, with yes. Robert Redford, one of the great political movies ever. Well, All the President's Men, although a movie ostensibly about journalism, right. is really a political movie. Um, and uh, Doctor Strangelove, yeah. you know, which yeah. is a broadly speaking political movie about a moment, not about like I a feel like those are about say. political things. Yes, I know, I know. That's kind of the things I'm attracted to. Yeah. I have to say. And well, that's end, smarter. That, that's those are better movies. But when we're at a political yeah, convention, yeah, yeah. I can't I help know, but filter know, through personalities. I know, I know. And, I, and then if you ask me the question you asked me before, which is my favorite Jay Roach movie, is his most important political film, which is the second Austin Powers movie, which of is course. like a really important political uh, political overtones. That's to the it. one with Heather Graham, not the one with Beyonce. Correct. And that, well, I like the other one too. I like that one. That one had Goldmember in it, right? It seems weird that, by the way, to our, come back to our penis discussion. Right. You know, gold, <laughs> gold member, gold member, right. shit, gold right. member, something. Oh, smoking a pancake, <laughs> oh, bonging a blintz. Um, yes. um, I love those movies, um, and we're not going to talk to Jay very much about the Austin Powers movies, but uh, we will talk to him about political movies when we come back. But before we do that, well, you should tell people. Uh, where to find this podcast? You can find it where? You can find it, of course, on BloombergPolitics.com. And we encourage everyone to also on SoundCloud, but it always helps us if you find it on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes and give it a nice review. It makes it very easy for people to find the podcast and send it around. That is uh, a great, very helpful PSA. Mm-hmm. And we'll take a little break and we'll be back with Jay Roach. Culture Caucus. I'm John Heilman. And I'm Will Beach. It's fucking awesome to be here, right? And we're here <laughs> in the Republican convention in some giant room, and we're here with Jay Roach, who we have been teasing you with all through the podcast <laughs> with Jay's presence. Jay, of course, a great friend of mine and also a gentleman who's directed an extraordinary string of political films now. And it's one of the things I want to talk to you about, but um, let's just go through them, right? Um, First, recount, then game change, then Trumbo, then all the way. That's the political oeuvre, right? All f- that's the four? <laughs> that's the four, yes. Right, so that's pretty good, right? That's a, that's a serious run. It's, a, it's actually, I look back and go, how did that happen? Yes, I, well, I was not on that program to begin with. Yeah, so let's sure. answer that question. Let's have that as our first question of the day. <laughs> how did that happen, Jay? Jay, a fam- famously a, a comedy director of great renown. You know, the Austin Powers movies, the Meet the Parents movies, the, thank the you Borat. For, thank you for getting the resume out. Those thank are you. all, but well, yes, our, our listeners need to know. You no. were once one, the most successful comedy director of modern times, and then suddenly now... <laughs> A political director. What happened? Uh, a has-been comedy director who likes politics. Uh, you know, I 
I've always been interested in politics. I'm an extremely uh, curious amateur when it comes to politics. And uh, I studied economics in school. I, I thought I might go to law school and get into politics at one time. I went to Boys State, you know, in New Mexico and got to go to Roswell and be uh, a Supreme Court justice for a week, uh, <laughs> state Supreme Court justice. We actually, uh, our, our level of seriousness was we uh, formed a plot and kidnapped the governor uh, and held him in a room till, through lunchtime, uh, th- uh, trying to get better food or something. I can't remember what it was. Not so. <laughs> Session but, limitations. Yeah, is up, yeah, by the yeah, way. yeah. Um, but we, um, uh, you know, I just I've always been fascinated by uh, how people organize themselves, how people get together and try to. Uh, you know, improve the quality of their own lives, and whether it's at a neighborhood level, a, a city level, a state level, or a, or a, a civilization level, and that sounds really kind of broad and 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 uh, vague, but it's it's astonishing that anything ever works it, to me. Any that people who, are as selfish as we all are, as as greedy or or ambitious or whatever it is, all the forces that. When things do work, it's kind of amazing. And, uh, you know, I'm a real student, uh, amateur again, uh, of American history, the founding of our country. But when it doesn't work, and it seems to be that's the case more often, it's always interesting to me, how did that go wrong? And a lot of these stories are, how did that go wrong? And who who's, who thought it was the right way to go? And how did that happen? And then what, what did go right about it? So, so that's a that's like a, a high level, like theoretical and interesting answer. But just from the the, the, the most precise, <laughs> how did it happen? Yeah, but but, like, yeah. but, 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 just, but that that is I what mattered to I, me. I, I and totally how, get it. So when I'm doing all these comedies, and uh, you know, I'm getting I'm having a blast because I'm working with the funniest people on earth in many cases. But I'm I'm feeling like wow, I lo- I love doing this, but I. I'm interested in what can what else can storytelling do, and even what else can comedy do. There's a lot of comedy in these political films, and somehow I guess, I guess it was really my manager uh, mentioned to Tom Hanks's company that, who were doing the Mark Felt story at a time that um, you know this guy's interested in politics too. Maybe she meet with, and I actually was really fascinated with that. There's a kind of Rashomon version of of Deep Throat, the the guy who leaked everything to Woodward and Bernstein in the garage because once it became clear he was the number two man in the FBI. Uh, the guy who's actually in charge of finding out who's leaking is the leaker. Uh, and I thought that's a really fascinating story. And that's, I would try to make it a, a kind of Rashomon suspenseful thing. Nixon's trying, Nixon figured out who Mark Felt was and, or he at least had a hunch and was trying to bring him down at the same time Felt was trying to bring Nixon down. So I thought that's, wow, that's, that's compelling. When do we get to see that movie? Well, it's, like it's, that I'm, movie. I'm producing it and it's uh, uh, a guy named P- uh, Peter Lannisman who wrote the script. Mm, oh. My schedule didn't uh, gel. He did with concussion, right? C- yeah. And yeah. Uh, yes, he did concussion and uh, Parkland. Mm-hmm. A really great director, yeah. a good guy, and wrote the script with me. I mean, I, I didn't write it. I was developing it with him for years and with Playtone, and uh, and it just got shot. So they're uh, they're editing it right now. Yeah, I remember you being working on this and not being able to figure out how to get it done for it, like a well, long for the time, for years. Time, right. And Peter was, Peter, to his credit, did figure it out and got Ridley Scott interested in a bunch of people. Well, anyway, somehow in the process of doing that, it became known that I wasn't only interested in doing comedies. And Paula Weinstein mentioned that to Sidney, Sidney Pollack. I had read recount uh and brought danny in and said i you know i'd love to do this he said yeah it's already gone uh sydney's doing it. and i said ah 
of course, that's amazing because Sidney, I'm such a fan of his. And in a way, he's been a, a sort of distant mentor of mine. Uh, I, I loved his films, and and uh, he'd encouraged me a few times. And so I, I thought, oh, that's that's so cool. And now, now I get to meet you, Danny Strong, who wrote this amazing script. And a, f- a couple of months later, um, Sidney called me and said, come, come and have lunch with me. I, I have some interesting news, and I want to talk to you about something. And he revealed at that point that he was sick and, uh, and uh, wanted me to take over for him on, to do recount. So for, the, for those listening who don't know, again, I hate to be the, like, the, um, the resume guy, Danny Strong, who was supposed to be here, um, who was the guy who wrote the screenplay for Recount and wrote the screenplay for Game Change, also is like the impresario behind Empire, Empire mm-hmm. and now is doing the Holden Caulfield uh, Salinger movie. Um, Danny is, in my mind, will always be the angry jockey um, from. He, because he, <laughs> you remember he once <laughs> auditioned for. Yeah. He auditioned for no for Luck. Oh, for, for Luck for, for Luck for, oh. the, for the for the for the show yeah. Luck, and yeah. and he auditioned for a part that was known only as Angry Jockey. Oh my God, I Danny didn't is know Danny's that the diminutive fellow. So um, I always think of him just the Angry Jockey. He's not here right now, so I'm sort of he's, angry at him. Yeah. And yet he's a strangely bastard. a very big man. Yeah. Oh, he's that's a very such a tall guy joke for you. <laughs> he's a, he's really an is. ongoing <laughs> a bit. Of, he's lucky uh, I don't call him Poison Dwarf, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Uh, he Danny is uh, Danny is brilliant. I, I must say, and at that time nobody really knew that he was a brilliant screenwriter. He was known as uh, I forget the character's name in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I mean he's he was famous for that. I've, I was with Woody Harrelson one time, and these women were coming up to us, and <laughs> Woody was all beaming, thinking they were coming at him. And they went straight to Danny Strong, and uh, and Woody was like, "What the hell?" And so he was a famous he's a famous actor who now has proven he's also an excellent excellent screenwriter. So he wrote he please, wrote this. Please stop praising. Danny yeah. Strong. No, I, I listen. I have to because that's the only way I can get him on the phone now. <laughs> and we we ha- we uh, we work together, and then now he's too famous for me. I, I always find it interesting. You know, I came from the world of sports a little bit, and it's always funny. Whenever, a little bit? A little bit, yes. Yeah, I, a a lot bit. bit. And it was always funny whenever... Will Leach, founder of Deadspin. Who whenever, movie people, whenever movie people come in to work on a sports movie, everyone in sports, their eyes just get so starry, and they can't believe, that. is that John Hamm? That's John Hamm, and they all completely lose their minds. And... I, is it the same way in politics? Our political, uh, like when you go into the political world, is do you feel like this urge? Like you know, I say that, that of course politics is is Hollywood for ugly people. Do you find that the case coming in from the Hollywood world that everyone is just starstruck to just be close to it, or or do they have an extra level of scrutiny when you're working on something? Uh, you know, I I actually maybe just because of my own uh, insecure. Uh, predisposition I always feel like I'm the starstruck one because I, I honestly uh, I'm more starstruck meeting people like John and Mark or especially uh, for some reason I'm very starstruck around political journalists just yeah. because those are people I spend all my mm-hmm. time trying to understand and watching on television uh, I do find I mean obviously you go to the White House correspondence dinner and there is a kind of uh, I think it goes both ways I guess yeah. is the best thing the best mutual answer. suck up era, suck up there's up a suckery. little bit of like oh what you know you can I get in your film and or, or from yeah. my point of view can you tell me a story that could be a great film and so we're always kind of dancing around and it is it's actually uh, surreal because I honestly feel like we're the amateurs. We don't know anything about this. We, how, in a way, and I felt this way even on, from the first political film. How am I uh, qualified to even get, you know, to 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 believe that I could tell a story that's not just um, entertaining, but is also relevant, accurate, to, uh, well enough, well observed enough? And I, I typically say, well, I'm not sure I can, but if there is a way, I can translate from an outsider's point of view what some of this might mean then maybe that maybe that's 
maybe I'm speaking the outsider's language and I can tell the story from that point of view. I did it in a sports yeah. movie myself yeah. exactly the same way when I went into, uh, I did a hockey movie mm-hmm. that David Kelly wrote mm-hmm. uh, starring Russell Crowe and, uh, and Burt Reynolds and yeah. a, a, bunch, a bunch of really cool people, Mystery Alaska. And I had never seen a professional hockey game. I didn't know how to play hockey. Uh, I knew football. I knew what a ta- what a sport could mean to a town, yeah. and that was what the essence of that story was. But again, I, I, I got a lot of nice compliments from hockey people because, and from people who didn't know hockey because it, I, I felt like I could, I was showing it to them and experiencing it to them from the point of view of the outsider. You know, for me, almost all stories are sort of you know, heart of darkness or, or uh, you know, the, the outsider's point of view. Like, I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm going in deeper than I probably deserve to go and, and should go, but I'll, I'll go in and see if I can bring something out and, and give back to the audience. This is actually a little bit of a question, actually, for both of you guys having worked on Game Change. I'm always curious, as someone that writes about movies and is also in a journalist in, in other fields, how important accuracy is. And I know, obviously, in one level it's important in that, you know, these are real people, you want to do some fidelity to them. But I think of a movie like, say, The Social Network. Like, The Social Network, that's actually not who Mark Zuckerberg is at all. That is basically, <laughs> you know, they, this character that they kind of spun off when, and made into a very compelling movie and a very outstanding, mm-hmm. and I think an excellent movie, but not actually who Mark Zuckerberg is. That's kind of their interpretation of Mark Zuckerberg. And do you find more, I know with Game Change, I've talked, you know, we talked about confirmation a little bit with, when we talked about that in this podcast. Um, when you, with the game change, you know, John's talked about how you work very hard to try to, to get that accurate. But is how, how do you ride that line between how accurate something is and how entertaining something is? Particularly it's in something like politics where the stakes are often so high. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a tough set of issues. And it varies. It's, it's, it's different um, from, from film to film. But I, I have thought a lot about it. And I, I'm going to try not to go into a kind of my stump speech about this. But I do have a kind of uh, set of attitudes about it. It, it is, you are saying to the audience, this is uh, based on, derived from, uh, you know, started with a true story. And the audience partly comes to see it or turns it on to see it because they th- want to know about something they know really happened. And so they're expecting a certain amount of truth in it. But I do think they're not expecting, or, or I, I would say it would be a, probably a mistake to expect a two-hour version of an event that might have taken place in 36 days in Recount's case, or in 13 years in Trumpo's case, to be spot-on, historically accurate, day-to-day, chronologically, geographically, whatever, I, you know, my my facetious way of saying is, someone asked me on Trumbo, how much of this is not true? And I said, uh, all of it. You realize, you realize the act, they're actors, right? <laughs> they're, we made- Louis C.K. is alive. <laughs> He's like totally yeah, alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Brian Cranston doesn't have a weird mustache <laughs> right. and smoke uh, uh, cigarettes. There are and lights filter. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. and we right off that. camera, I am, I am, you know, uh, and we, making and we, grimaces and uh, and we do multiple takes of every single part of it. Like you yeah. get to do it until it's right. You guys yeah, are destroying so, the illusion for me. I don't I know, even want to go to I movies I anymore. Mean, and it is, but it is about destroying the illusion in a certain way because, uh, and I actually did it in Trumbo where I, I uh, had intercut a lot of archival footage which is obviously sort of accurate, accurate, but even as we all know, you can lie with the camera by what you leave out, by what, how you edit. So I went from the archival footage and intercut my actors playing famous people with actual famous people. Ronald Reagan is actually in the film the, from, when, from the HUAC hearings. And then I cut to Brian in the HUAC hearings, both in black and white. His is all kind of uh, grainy to try to match the 
archival stuff. So I'm tricking you like very intentionally. And then I push in on Brian, push the edge of the frame out, put, throw the sound into the surround speakers and go to color and say, look, this is a story. It's not history. It's a story about history. All that said, that gives me some kind of license, which is not, I don't think it's a license to bullshit you. I don't, I think it's a license to say, there's some really compelling issues here, really compelling people who are up against unbelievable odds and, and their, own, their own demons, and yet they did something really remarkable. And, and there is truth in, in you, you must commit to trying to get it right in, in that sense of right. And that's why when you work with someone like with, with, with John and Mark, as we did on Game Change, to have people who know so much about what went on and put it into the story, then the audience really does, uh, you know, get, uh, they, they're, they're brought into it and allowed to lose themselves in it because they feel like, ah, I'm getting something true, again, truthy, uh, right. using Colbert's word. And it's, it's meaningful. I think it's meaningful, but not, it's not history and it's not, it's not journalism either right. or I, documentary, documentaries. Yeah. I just, I'd say three things about that that are all true, I think, and I'll be brief about it. Yeah. The first is that it's not a fucking documentary, right? right. And like, it's not, you know, if you want a documentary, watch a documentary. Right. And, and so I think people do have an expectation that it will hew to some, yeah. something close to the truth, but she not can, that... Sarah Palin can't fly away. But, that, but, but not that it's a documentary. That's the first thing. I mean, again, as we but thought about it... But if you think it, a documentary is true, you might be fooling yourself, too. Well, of course, of course. That's, a, that's a, another... That's a whole other discussion. That's a whole other, <laughs> dis a whole other <laughs> discussion. But, but, but again, so there's that. Yeah. The second thing is, I think for us, we had a very strong sense that, like, that the, one of the core things was that things that were not strictly true should not do violence to the truth, right? Of so, course, of course. so it didn't matter if like, did Steve Schmidt make the phone call to John McCain in the middle of the night from a, from a, a utility closet? Well, who, I mean, really who fucking cares, yeah. right? The key issue is he made the call. Right. And did he use exactly those words or just words like them? The main point was he was trying to make the call to John McCain to say, we think Sarah Palin has a mental problem, you know, Absolutely. and that she's breaking down. And that was true. Whether yeah. he said it exactly that way or in exactly that place or at exactly that time, kind of immaterial yep. but it doesn't do violence to the truth if you're going to right. change things and compress things don't do violence to the truth and the right. third thing i think is that and one of the things there are a number of reasons why you want to hew to things that are as accurate as possible one is to be able to defend yourself from critics which is a tactical thing but mm -hmm. the second is that truth is often stranger and more powerful than fiction and so if you can find if amazing stuff actually happened and you can have you can put that in yeah and be like this is true it genuinely happened and also it, like, it hits home so hard when you can say, yeah, that crazy fucking thing, that actually happened. People say, whoa, okay, so yeah. that's amazing. It almost hits home more than uh, something a, that was invented. I completely agree. That's, that's exactly uh, how I look at it. And I want to give one example off of working with you guys on Game Change that w got to, it, for those reasons, the truth really mattered and being accurate really mattered to me. And it was in the debate prep when Sarah Palin is... Uh, in the hotel little weird meeting room and there's no windows and she's wearing the hockey shirt and there's stacks of cards that she'll never get through and they're just trying to get her to focus and it was really important to me that we get her attitude right because I knew it was a it was a great reveal to me and from the from your account of it and I it was the thing that to me humanized Sarah Palin is that she's now expected to go up against Joe Biden and deliver some kind of knockout punch in a debate on national television that's going to have millions and millions and millions of people, and she is definitely not prepared for it, not equipped for it, 
and she goes into a, um, a near catatonic state as i would yeah. i often say if i was that was me i'd be naked in the bathroom with the door <laughs> with bolt you know like screwed the door shut and you couldn't get me out because i would be i would be totally freaked out so i thought it would be important to get that right so i made we could have just gone with your account of it which was accurate i thought but we we really actually went and interviewed every person we could find who was in the actual room and i and i people would say well she was kind of rocking and cataton i go well i okay but act that out for me show me exactly what it looked like because i don't want to get that wrong we're going to get hit on that and we did it was the only thing her her people came at us for was and she came at was she was never that catatonic and that and right. I, I thought that was extremely important and I think the audience got that it was authentic and that that mattered a lot so I want to ask you a question about 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 all the way and this is something I've been curious about we've never discussed it and I'm, yeah. inter I'm interested in it right because recount and game change I'm gonna put Trumbo aside for a moment just because it's not about electoral politics right recount and game change are basically not about the the main characters about, about the protagonists they're not the the elected officials they're not re, it's not really about Palin and McCain right. and 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 recount was not about Gore and not right. about Bush right. it was about the behind the scenes players and there were choices that you made in both those stories were because you thought those people were actually more accessible in some ways to an audience an audience can understand Steve Schmidt or Ron Klain in a way that yeah. they can't understand Al Gore or Sarah Palin and they're not icons so you're not distracted by right. any mismatch with right that. yeah. And, but I know that one of the things that most appeals to you, and in both those cases, the moral conflicts at the heart of those stories are about these ordinary people placed in extraordinary circumstances, faced with serious moral dilemmas and having to make choices around them that kind of are, that tear at their conscience and tear yep. at their hearts, right? So at stake, yeah, I, I think most of the best stories have some element of that, yeah. Right, so, so when you went to do All the Way, it's different at the level of one of the most famous people in modern American history, LBJ, right? You had obviously Cranston's brilliant stage performance and a play to work with, right? But just talk about the challenges of like how it was different to have to deal with not with dealing with LBJ yeah. and what to the extent that the moral conflict element is a through line. Talk about that because yeah. I think these two things are related. Yeah, I mean they, it is it is uh, an interesting difference and it, there wasn't a kind of um, every man point of view person in in, uh, in in all the way it was really trying to get into the psyche of of uh, of an iconic uh, president and someone who was as complicated as as LBJ and it came to me uh, a little differently than the other two uh, I mean recount came to me almost you know the script was all done and and on game change I'd actually pitched it even before I knew you guys had a book I pitched right. trying to, to get in those rooms where they chose her but you got it wasn't until your book came out that we thought ah that's the story you guys found Steve Schmidt you, I mean you figured out that whole angle on it this came to me as a play uh, I saw it a couple times in on Broadway and it was amazing and the the striking thing is, is so obvious is is Brian's transformation into and performance of LBJ so I I thought that story was going to be uh, a kind of voyeur's uh, um, insight into this man, and I tried to actually the style of it is not a style I use in any of the other three. It was deliberately to try to make it more subjective, to to almost go uh, more at the idea that I'm going to give try to give you an insight into to something I don't even I have to kind of guess that I have to interpret I'm, I'm being expressionistic about it which which Robert had done in the play as well and he wrote the screenplay too but I I just 
looked for a style that made it feel like it's actually from this man's point of view. I'm using a camera uh, where people are looking into the lens as he walks towards Congress to give the, 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 um, the, the joint session speech after Kennedy's assassination. And I'm using the music in a much more uh, uh, trippy, you know, subjective way. So, and it was, you know, it is a, a soul at stake to a certain extent. Johnson was... Uh, pro-civil rights, I believe, uh, you know, most of his political career, but he had, I do believe he had suppressed that to, to keep his support in the South, and that he did have a choice to, uh, to, to let that out once he had power or not. And those, those choices of how far to go, how, how much to trust Dr. King, uh, you know, when his ego and, and sense of control does overtake him in the second half of the story, and he, and he even, to some extent, turns on Dr. King and resents that King won't uh, help him more in the civil rights thing and, and help him win the election. I mean, all of those things were, those were uh, compelling to me, but it, it didn't, you're absolutely right, it's a completely, I think, a completely different uh, angle on the story. And yet still got nominated for a whole bunch of Emmys. <laughs> How does that fucking happen? I don't really understand it. I think go I'm expecting this Brian podcast. Cranston, great casting. Yeah. I tell you, that's how it happens. That's yeah. the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. I, I, kinda, I feel like I had to have to spin it to what's going on now. Yeah, and right. Where we are and the idea of... Uh, it's funny, I watched... Um, I mean, we are in Cleveland, and Jay, you live in L.A., if yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah I do. Although yeah. this this blue uh, curtain in a box on a floor could be anywhere. That's what's yeah. great about the traveling blue curtain box. It's yeah. so great about Cleveland. Cleveland is I know. Uh, it's good. <laughs> a lot of traveling blue curtain boxes <laughs> in Cleveland, uh, wherever you go. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious, you, know, you talk about like trying to dramatize people that uh, we know generally, generally pretty well. And I find it fascinating... You know, in the last, uh, for a long time, Saturday Night Live had a really hard time figuring out how to do Barack Obama. They had mm -hmm, a hard time. Mm -hmm, Satterist mm -hmm. talked about this often, about how hard a time they had to figure out to get him. And, of course, now with Donald Trump, you know, there was the, there was the Johnny Depp funny or die thing. But it almost felt like Trump was too strange, even for someone as strange as Johnny Depp, to really dig into in a lot of ways. When you see how, when you watch this, and we talked <laughs> earlier about how truth being stranger than fiction, mm -hmm. how do you even watch this, imagine stripping any sort of sense uh, uh, or yeah. even inherent drama out of this? That's a really good question and it is partly why I'm, I'm here and, and looking at it to, to sort of uh, answer that. Is there, a, is there a, a movie version of this or a TV show version of this? And I don't honestly know. Uh, you, you, you really can't go backstage and find anything more just over the top than what's going on uh, on, on the six. surface, you know, right. and and that is a you know that is Donald Trump's uh, superpower is is uh, showmanship and and using uh, thinking out loud as showmanship and and he has an interesting brain, you know, he's whatever he's thinking is kind of you know kind of crazy, kind of interesting, kind, and it and it comes out in a sort of provocative and sometimes funny way and a and a way that's. Um, generates a tremendous amount of drama and conflict. I mean, everything he's doing is what you do on a reality show, and uh, to create, to create interest and suspense and whatever. And he's yeah, evidently, you know, very effective at it. Uh, how you could do that backstage, I don't know. My my thing is always, well, what about the people who are trying to handle that, or are trying to react to that, or trying to report on that? You know, what what are their lives like, and how are they? Uh, you know how are, how are they coping? How are, what are their new strategies? What not that well? Yeah. <laughs> how are they? Who are they getting in league with? Who are the 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 dark you know the dark arts people who are who they've had to you know get 
get with to get it, go after somebody else's dark arts people. Like that stuff is interesting to me. But even that, I don't know if it'll ever be more interesting than what's actually going on on the surface. You know, the TV writer Alan Sepinwall has this theory about television shows, which is that you can make a main character good, you can make a main character bad, you can make do all sorts of things with characters, but you can't make a main character on a television incompetent. Like it's the one thing, no matter what, there has to be a really? fundamental. That's his in theory. Comedy in comedy, incompetence is the is well, the most okay, Michael, important. Okay, <laughs> fine. Michael Scott, fine. Michael and Scott. Do you think Austin Powers is competent? I, I no, know. we're talking about like it's like a, like a serious television show. Like yeah, the idea serious, that like yes, you yes, really can't do a, t a serious television show where that where you d at least the audience does not have a basic fundamental mm -hmm. uh, relation. And like listen, I think this is clearly a just example. imagine it. Just imagine if Walter White wasn't like really good at making that. Yeah, film. well, it'd be a very short <laughs> series. You know, be like, you know, I mean, I kind of like oh, yeah. fall apart. It would end in a hotel room blowing yeah. up in like episode three um, but just that kind of notion of because you know in all of your movies if there's one thing I think all particularly all the political movies have in common they're about very competent people these are they're all very competent people these are all generally very smart people they have flaws they make mistakes mm -hmm. but generally speaking they are they are competent people and you mm -hmm. look you know th to me an interesting thing about the Trump campaign is not so much like what's what's funny what's so strong about the movie version of game change and I think in the book is there's all these people that have worked their entire career in politics and are, and are really really good at what they do and all of a sudden they come across this person that, that just is not from that world and doesn't mm -hmm. know what they're doing, mm -hmm. but there are more of them than there are of her. Mm -hmm. It seems to be in a situation that may be reversed a little bit here, and I feel like that may make it even harder to dramatize something like this. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. It's interesting. It depends on what we're competent at what, and you know, like what. I, there, what's that thing? There's a thing. Um, Mike Myers used to talk to me about it. About, I think it's an acting thing of that. There's there's levels of there's um. Like if you go from unconscious incompetence, which means you don't even know what you don't know, to uh, conscious incompetence. I mean, now I know what I what I don't know, and I'm going to learn about it. To conscious competence, which means I know it, I know how to do it, but I'm still thinking about it. And then to unconscious competence, which is mean I don't even have to think about it. I'm just good at it, and I and and the this this I kind of disagree with you because I find the most interesting characters are often the unconsciously incompetent people, and those people who who think they know, but are, and that is, it right. is the, it is in, in comedy, those right, are the, guy. that's, that's Borat and Austin Powers and the people I've worked, you know, on this characters I've worked on. But it's also a, another character I worked with uh, was the De Niro character in Meet the Parents who thinks he's the best spy in the world and gets every single thing <laughs> wrong, uh, even about his, uh, even in the domestic situation. Those are great characters because they, they're blind to what's up, you know? And so I think that works in drama too. The blind spots are what makes a character both more compelling because they're kind of doomed to, and, and, and because you know, oh, sh I know what they don't know and they're walking into that scene and they don't know that this is happening. That's, that's great drama. And I think that's what makes Trump uh, probably a better comedic character than a, than a uh, you know a dramatic character if you were going to tell a story about it. So I, the 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 smartass in me wants to make a satire <laughs> and <laughs> cast Mike Myers as Donald Trump. I actually think he would be great as as Donald Trump. But but Brian Cranston would be great in the drama as Trump too. He wants but that he says he says he wants to play. Yeah, right? he's he wants been doing, to play. He's been working on his impression. It's pretty yes, good now. I'm you sure, know, I'm he's sure <laughs> it is. I'm I sure saw it, it on I saw it on uh, um, uh, was it your show? Did he do no. the impression or was it no, uh, he Good Morning America or something? Yeah. So I, that's I don't know. I don't that's oh, I don't well, do short listen. answers as you can tell, but that's as, a, as an unconscious incompetence. <laughs> right. Good to know that I'm interested. <laughs> I, that's so. where I am at too. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up, but I just just to just put a button on that discussion. And I Jay, I you know I would would you know walk across um, hot coals and broken glass to see a movie you made about this election. 
But I do think it's interesting in this sense, you know, the the, 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 what's in conflict in some ways is these two things. Mm -hmm. One is that the stakes are really high, right? Everyone has a higher. sense. Know, everyone yeah. has a sense that there's this great kind of there are these great moral stakes, not just for any individuals who are working for Trump or supporting Trump. We just had a long talk about this the other night, and you know the various Republicans who moved from being never Trump to now being on Trump's side, and what kind of moral conflicts they're going through, and various Republicans who feel like they might have blood on their hands if, if Trump wins. Those are fascinating, but the bigger stakes are just like the whole country feels as though there's this gigantic sense of of like the consequences of who wins or who loses this election yeah. is huge. So that's like good for storytelling. It's big stakes, great. Yeah. On the other hand, the thing that I just said a minute ago, which I do believe, which is that you know truth is stranger than fiction, and and an amazing truth makes for really powerful exposition and really powerful narrative. In this case, it's like the truth is so strange that like this is the one of the rare stories where. Like, I really do feel like if you just, like, if you if you went in and, I guess it's a cliche, but if you went in and pitched this story as fiction in Hollywood, starting from Trump's rise to today, and you literally just listed all the things that have happened, any sane executive would be like, <laughs> no, no one yeah. will believe that. Yeah, it would yeah. be totally incredulous. And I... I, I so it it's sounds a weird like a, a show you would pitch to a reality show guy. Yes, a reality show billionaire. Nobody takes him seriously, and guess what? He yes. gets he starts winning the primaries. And I'm yeah. not sure I believe it now. Yes. And I'm watching it happen. So, so it's like it's like no, it's like but a, it's it's uh, it is. I don't know. I'm honestly I don't know if there's a movie. We're not we're not saying there's a movie. Please don't anybody who's listening it's announce exclusive. we're making oh, a movie. Oh, there's a we're movie. Not, we're not. No, there's no. There will be a movie. I don't know. Maybe maybe there will be. But I'm not sure we'll be the ones doing it. But I do think you have to remember that as much as we're into storytelling, I mean, I have to remind myself, we're not, this is, this is real. The stakes are incredibly high. I, I'm, I, uh, you know, sat in the uh, convention stage last night and uh, I mean, at the uh, Quicken Loans Arena and just, uh, you know, I was kind of, wow, this is happening. This is, this, our, our civilization is at stake. We, we're, this, people are watching this go down and it's like a big pageant and it's like a reality show uh, and it's, you know, Trump walks out with We Are the Champions by Queen, which, by the way, I was like, wow, what would Freddie Mercury be thinking right now if he was watching this given the LGBT stuff? But, I, you know, it's, it's our lives. It's our. It's the quality of our children's lives. It's. Uh, it's war or not war. Maybe down the line. Who knows? I mean, it's and it's. It's not funny. You know. It's. 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 And I. I, I can be flip about it and and joke about telling telling stories about it. But I. I hope that the storytelling gets people into that conversation. What you guys gets gets people and do get people into the conversation so beautifully. But who knows if we can have any anything to offer right. on this one? It's so it's it's so crazy. I don't know if I can say anything better than what's what uh, or anything more interesting than what's actually going on. All right, so Jay Roach, um, thank you for doing this. I had to say that maybe the best reason for you to make this movie is that whether Brian Cranston plays it serious or <laughs> whether Mike Myers plays it funny. The one thing that we know is that J is that Danny Strong is not going to be up for this part <laughs> because Danny Strong will, could never do Donald Trump. And I'm for any movie getting made that Danny can't be in. That's my general view about these things. Um, Jay Roach, you're awesome. 
You guys are awesome. Thank you for having me on. This is really cool. This is uh, the end of this episode. Episode what number is this again? You reminded me earlier, but I can't uh, it's remember. It's been a while. Uh, 437. Okay, for episode number 437 of the Culture Caucus. I'm John Heilman. And I am Will Lee. And Will, where can you find this thing again? Just remind people as we say goodbye. In the air. It's behind you as you speak. <laughs> but if you can't find that, you can also, of course, go on BloombergPolitics.com. Find us on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, please give us a nice review. It helps people find the podcast. Right, and it won't do anything good for Danny Strong's career. So that's all <laughs> even better reason. To give it a Make your review like. a negative review against Danny Strong. I will. Danny is I amazing. <laughs>